morning, saints. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a wondrous thing that that all of these magnificent and outrageous things that we have just proclaimed in song, they're all true. All of the things that have been read to us in the scriptures, they're all true. It's truly amazing. And we believe them. And they speak of how desperately we needed you, how desperately we continue to need you. Father, as we turn to the word, we see how desperately we need you even to continue believing them. We pray for your help in that way. We pray that you would grant us to believe the scriptures this morning. That as we struggle to believe in issues large and small in this life, that you would help our faith. We pray, Father, that if there are those among us this morning of no faith, not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the founder of faith, would give them faith and bring them to life. We pray for the rest of us who struggle in faith day to day, that Jesus, the perfecter of faith, would meet us and strengthen our faith by the things that we see in this text that we would leave here seeing Jesus more clearly, loving him more and trusting him more deeply. We believe, Lord, that if that eventuates, it will be all by your grace. And we pray that it would. We ask for it in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. This morning we'll be considering Mark chapter 7, verse 31, through chapter 8, verse 26. And so that's a larger chunk of text than we would typically look at, but by the end it should be obvious why we're taking that entire entire text. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to take a, a small little snippet from the middle. And read it before we, before we begin. We're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 11. And read through verse 15. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod. You may be seated. 
we have we have read some wonderful things this morning. We've we've sung beautiful things, things that we believe. In fact, our belief in these things is what has brought us all here this morning and unites us. And yet, even as believers, we have a faith problem. This week, my extended family on my wife's side, we found out that our nephew, Bear, he's a five-year-old boy, was diagnosed with a rare and difficult-to-treat form of, of brain cancer. And intermittently, if not immediately, we begin to think dark thoughts. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And when that happens, it's going to lead to this and this. Just all, all dark. And... Those, those thoughts have theological underpinnings, which if stated would sound something like, all things don't work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God's definition of what is good for us is not better than our definition. God is not wiser than we are. When confronted with these large problems, large trials, we find that we have a faith problem. But is it only in these large struggles? I had no choice but to shake my head at myself this week in, in, in that regard. I found myself fretting over the logistics of a relatively minor thing this week. I was thinking to myself, how is, how is this going to work? There's just too many obstacles. There's, there's just no way. And th those thoughts had theological underpinnings, which, if stated, would sound something like, God doesn't provide. God isn't all in as it pertains to equipping His people. I'm all alone. And I, I caught myself, and I was jarred to remember the passage that I'm preaching this morning. We have a faith problem, and if... If we pay close attention to our own thoughts and hearts in troubled times, troubles both large and small, we'll find in ourselves what we find in this passage, and that is that even as believers, belief, trust, is not what comes most naturally to us, but unbelief is. Unbelief is what comes most naturally to us. You have a faith problem. And Mark, by the way that he has ordered the stories in this section, presents a solution. He gives us five scenes working together to make one point. The solution to our faith problem is the object and origin of our faith, Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can bring a person from complete unbelief to strong unwavering faith. And so when we recognize our faith problem in things large and small, to whom should we go? And to whom should we look? We should look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to begin in 8.1, and I realize that we have a story that precedes 8.1, but we will come back to that story at the end of chapter 7, at the very end, and it will be obvious why when we get there. So let's begin in 8.1. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, what does this remind us of? This is is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. Just in chapter 6, it's, it's like a pared-down version of the feeding of the 5,000. It's missing some of the meatier elements of that earlier feeding, the details that we drew on to find some interpretive weight in that first feeding. They're missing here. But there is one thing that stands out in this feeding in light of the first feeding. After Jesus expresses His characteristic compassion in verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 8, In verse 4, the disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, if we have read earlier chapters, we should be thinking, what on earth are you thinking? This, This is remarkable because the disciples, they didn't just see Jesus feed the 5,000, they helped they, they fed the 5,000 with Jesus. And it's not just that they don't remember, because we'll find later in the narrative, they remember all the details. They remember everything. It's that they don't trust Him here. And so now there's a smaller crowd of hungry people, and to the disciples, this is a real pickle. How can these people be fed? And that question as theological underpinnings, which, if stated, might sound like Jesus can't feed these people. Jesus can't or won't do what He's done before. What has happened in the past has no bearing on the present. They, be- they believe, obviously, they follow Jesus, but they don't believe. They've followed, but they don't trust Him instinctively with everyday stuff, even though He's provided... He's provided in the past. And, and when I state it that way, it actually sounds a lot like me. I mean, I've followed Jesus. And often, though, I, I don't instinctively trust Him with everyday stuff, even though He's provided in the past. Anybody else willing to cop to that? Maybe, maybe small things come up. Maybe big things come up. And in spite of the Lord's impeccable track record, we think, how on earth is this going to work out? That's a faith problem. Verse 10, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. A sign in Mark is not the same as a miracle. What the, what the Pharisees want is a sign from heaven revealing God's approval of Jesus. Now, apparently, they, they, they miss Jesus' baptism because that would have been exactly what they say they're looking for. Or you, they, there's Jesus' transfiguration, which is coming up, although they're not going to be invited. But it wouldn't matter anyway because even if they saw a sign, they wouldn't believe. How do we know that? Because we see what their motive is in verse 11. If you look there again, it says that they were seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. The original language could also be translated to, to tempt Him. So they're, they're not looking for a reason to believe. They're actually looking for a, a reason or a way to trip Him up so that they might kill Him. And that motive of, of wanting to kill Jesus, it goes all the way back to chapter 3. So the, the Pharisees, they have seen plenty to, to believe in Jesus if they were so inclined. They've seen demons cast out of Jesus. But do you remember what they said about that? What did they say about Jesus casting demons out of people? Well, he just cast demons out of people by the prince of the demons. I mean, no matter what he does, they write it off. Nothing they could see in the future from heaven or otherwise would lead to faith. And so Jesus says they're not going to receive a sign. And so the Pharisees likewise have a faith problem. Although theirs is, is more problematic, the Pharisees' problem is a refusal to believe at all in the face of obvious miracles. Both the disciples and the Pharisees have a faith problem. Now, certainly different in degree, but they both have a faith problem. And that prepares us for the first big warning in the passage. That warning is, beware of seeing, but not believing. Beware of seeing, but not believing. Look with me now at verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Some, some questions are in order. First of all, what, what, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, of Herod? And many of you will be aware that leaven is just an agent that when, when you knead it into dough, it, it spreads and causes that dough to, to rise. So leaven we could think of as, as an agent that pervades and for that reason, the Bible uses leaven as a, as a symbol of influence. A little leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. And, and in that context, he's talking about the influence of evil. So Paul there is saying, beware of, of the influence of this, this evil person within the church. Jesus here is saying, beware of the influence of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, what exactly is behind that influence? What specifically is Jesus warning them about? What do the, what do the Pharisees and Herod have in common? The one thing that they have in common is unbelief in the face of overwhelming evidence. I mean, we've already seen that in the Pharisees. But if we think back to chapter 6, we see this in Herod. Herod heard about all the wonders that Jesus and His disciples are doing. And what does Herod conclude? That Jesus is the Messiah and should be worshipped? 
No. He thinks to himself, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. See, in, in the face of, of great overwhelming evidence, John ends up in unbelief. Unbelief is what they have in common. And by referring to their unbelief as leaven, Jesus indicates that unbelief is influential. It's, it's infectious. It spreads. L- listen to me, young people and old people. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Beware of the the influential power of unbelief in our culture, especially on social media. It seems today that the only credential necessary to qualify someone to be taken seriously is the conviction that the highest good is to be true to oneself. And that definition of good is going to come into conflict with God's definition of good. Why is it that we are seeing people of all ages who have seen the truth of the gospel, heard the truth of the gospel? Why is it that we're seeing people who have that background and belief begin to hold that self rather than Creator God, is the most reliable judge of good. That's because unbelief is influential, and that unbelief is flowing all around us, especially on social media. So what, 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 what is the leaven of the Pharisees in Herod? It's unbelief. Unbelief is influential. It's infectious. A second question to, to consider regarding these, these few verses we've just read, verses 14 and 15. So to whom does Jesus give this warning? He does not give this warning to the unbelieving crowds, but rather to His closest followers. I mean, He says this to the twelve, to these fishermen who have left everything behind to follow Him, and to to Levi who left his lucrative tax booth and followed Jesus. To them, Jesus says, hey, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of unbelief. Don't succumb. Don't become like them. Seeing but not believing. If He said it to them, He says it to you, follower of Christ. Beware of the spirit of the age. Don't become like those who have every reason to believe, but don't. They have the truth right in front of their face. They've they've seen it. They've heard it. Experienced it. But they don't believe. Don't be like that. Jesus is saying this to disciples, not to the lost. Third question to consider is why? Why does he give them this warning? And it is because he can see another lapse of faith on the horizon. He sees it coming. Look again at verse 14. It says that they had, they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only a single loaf. Verse 14 and verse 15, are they related? Absolutely they are. Because what did we read in verses 1 through 8? Verses 1 through 8, the disciples showed an inability to translate what they had seen before, the feeding of the 5,000, into active faith in the present. The feeding of the 5,000 meant nothing to them in an almost identical situation. And now they have no bread again. And Jesus knows they're going to see this as a problem in spite of who He is, in spite of what He's done. 
and their viewing the lack of bread as an issue puts them in a realm of unbelief not too far removed from the Pharisees and Herod. And so he warns them not to be like the Pharisees and Herod, these extreme examples of seeing but not believing. I wonder if a moment ago, as I was, as I was talking about the influence of, of unbelief, how it flows through our culture, I wonder if, if some of you were thinking to yourself, well, I would never give in to that brand of unbelief, this kind of pharisaical level of unbelief. I'm always going to believe in Jesus. I just struggle to trust the Lord day to day. Precisely. Precisely. It, it is... Regarding a day-to-day struggle of faith, it is in that context that Jesus says to his closest followers, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That is exactly where and when you need to beware of unbelief. In a sense, unbelief is unbelief. There are degrees of unbelief, but unbelief is unbelief. And I just struggle to trust the Lord day to day is but a stepping stone from I'm not sure the Bible has what I need to address this issue that I'm dealing with. And that is not that is just a stepping stone toward I'm not sure that God is who the Bible says he is. That is but a stepping stone toward I don't believe. Jesus gives this warning to the disciples most immediately because he sees this coming lapse of faith concerning bread. But he does it for another reason. More broadly, he does this because exhortations to continue in the faith, to continue believing, and warnings about falling away from the faith are a major means that the Holy Spirit uses to keep us in the faith. See, Jesus is already establishing a pattern that the, that the apostles are going to follow in their ministries. You will not find Jesus and the apostles saying to new converts what so many evangelist pastors and preachers do in our day. And some of us may have heard these kinds of things in, in our day. Oh, you just prayed to receive Christ? Did you mean it? Well, congratulations. You're in like Flynn. Don't look back. That is not what we find Jesus doing. That's not what we find the apostles doing. Listen to the apostolic paradigm for post-evangelistic ministry. Here's Acts 11.23. This is Barnabas. He is seeing new converts in Antioch. New converts in Antioch. The text reads, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain in the Lord Jesus Christ with purpose of heart. And regarding Paul and Barnabas ministering to new believers, new believers in Pisidia, Acts 13.43 reads, they spoke with them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 14.21 records this about Paul's ministry returning to churches where he had already done this. It says he went strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. He had already done it once. He goes back around and says, continue in the faith. And we see Jesus doing this in the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse in John chapters 13 through through 16, Jesus just does some magnificent things to encourage his disciples just prior to his going to the cross. Why does he do this? He tells them why in in John 16, 1. 
he says to the disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, the, the Jesus of John 16.1 is also the, the Jesus of John 6 and John 10 who said that whoever belongs to him cannot be plucked from his hand. The point is that these warnings are a means that, that he uses to keep us in the faith and we ought to receive them well. We ought to heed them. We ought to obey. When I follow in Christ, when I, when I follow Christ, I ought to take that moniker of believer, that label believer, I ought to take that as descriptive of my lifestyle, not a moment at my conversion. I am a believer. That's what I do. It's not what I did. Do you understand what I mean by that? I believe. It's not that I believed. And as believers, we must strive evermore to take what we see of Christ and believe it all the more. Now, Jesus gave them this warning, and they, they, they promptly walk right into the unbelief that he warned them about. They're, they're just like us, right? But let's pay close attention and not do the same. We can glean from the next section a second warning, perhaps a bit shaded, a bit different than what we've already seen, which was is beware of seeing but not believing. Another warning here is beware of believing but never growing in belief. Beware of believing but never growing in belief. Let's pick up now in, in verse 16. So he's, he's just given them the warning. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, did you not yet understand? Having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, those are, those are ideas that go back to the Old Testament, and they are emblematic descriptions of unbelief. Now, we've, we've noted already that the disciples, they have believed in Christ to the extent that they've left everything and, and followed Him. They believe in Jesus. And just after this passage, we're going to see Peter making the good confession on behalf of the twelve, you are the Christ. They, they believe, but they, they don't trust here with this day-to-day -day matter. They, they, don't, they don't have bread. And Jesus, by, by bringing up the two prior feedings, he's, he's exposing how incredible their unbelief is. It, it's, it's not like this happened on day one of their discipleship. You know, it's not like we're back in chapter one, right by the, by the Sea of Galilee. They've, they've just left their nets and, and their boats, and, and right then there's a bread shortage. You know, their, their weakness of faith at that point might have, have been somewhat expected, but here 
They have twice seen Jesus take a meal for one or two and transform it into a meal for a town. And yet that experience has not translated into present trust. In other words, their faith has not grown from their prior experiences with Jesus. They, they have not thought about what Jesus has done in the past and what that means about who He is and what all of that means about the present and future. They, they are still like baby Christians. They're displaying the faith that we would have expected on day one. And Jesus is troubled by this. Why are you talking about bread? Don't you understand? Hasn't, hasn't what you have seen of me, seen me do, hasn't it changed the way that you think about yourself and your circumstances? Hasn't it changed the way that you think about me? Do you not yet understand? Are you still living like it's day one? They've seen plenty to trust Him implicitly with anything. Certainly with bread. But they have a stagnation of faith. They're just... It's, it's like they're just along for the ride. As we come to the end of, of this section with the disciples and Jesus in the boat, we're, we're left with kind of a depressing picture. And many of us see in the disciples a picture of ourselves. We have a faith problem. And it is dangerous. We have this long track record with Jesus. And yet, when, when troubles come along, large or small, our knee-jerk is to, to doubt or question. And we're intended to wonder here, what do I do about this faith problem? Because I'm just like these disciples. What do I do? Now, some of us, some of us will hear a message like this, at least to this point, and turn that problem of faith inward and make it all the worse. Oh, I've got a faith problem. What if I'm not saved? It's all on me, 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 me. That's the wrong thing to do. And Mark is very kind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us bookends on these three stories that we've already looked, in, looked at story at the end of chapter 7, and a story right after Jesus with, with the disciples in the boat, bookends which teach us to do this, beg Christ, beg compassion of Christ, the founder and perfecter of faith. Beg the compassion of Christ, founder and perfecter of faith. So no, Note again what Jesus said to the disciples regarding their weakness of faith in verse 18. Remember what it was? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? What, what, what do we do about this faith problem? Well, now let's go back to chapter 7 and begin reading in verse 31. This is the first bookend. Then... He, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. 
And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here we have a man with ears who does not hear. Jesus solves this problem. Having ears, do you not hear? Do you have a faith problem? Jesus is the founder of faith. Go to Him. There's a reason this story is where it is. Now, we'll read the final section in a minute, the other bookend, but guess what we're going to find there? We're going to find a man with eyes who could not see, and Jesus fixes that problem. And we might think, well, these are just random healings, and they're just thrown in here. We're making a little too much of this. We're not, because if we put them side by side, these two healings together, we find that they are eerily similar. They are the two most similar healings in all of the book of Mark. He intends for us to connect them together and so connect the whole section together. Listen to these similarities. Both of the men, the the, the deaf man in chapter 7, the blind man in chapter 8, they're both brought to Jesus. The people that bring them beg Jesus to touch them. Jesus takes both of these men off by themselves to address their maladies. Jesus touches them both. Jesus uses his saliva to heal them. The only two times he ever does that. In each case, there is a threefold saying declaring the, the extent of the healing. And finally, there is an indication of some, to, some kind that the healing is supposed to be kept quiet. If you were to outline the two healings, they, they, they would go side by side perfectly. We're intended to link these healings together and to relate them to what comes between. Now, if we do that and if we believe that Mark has put these bookends here to cause us to read Jesus' words to the disciples understanding that Jesus Himself is the remedy to non-existent faith or immature faith, then the concluding bookend, we'll read in just a moment, may be of particular comfort to those of us struggling with immature faith. That is, that is those of us who do believe but struggle with faith. Let's read, let's read that story beginning in 8.22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. The wonder of this healing, and what makes it unique in all of Jesus' healings, is that it comes in stages, so to speak. The man didn't see perfectly after the first touch. Jesus just touched him again, and then he saw clearly. Now, this this is not intended to show that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, or sometimes he fires blanks. It, It is intended to comfort those who are in the same boat as the disciples. If if we 
who used to be of no faith now find ourselves to be those of faith, but who struggle to trust Him perfectly, struggle to believe Him in the day-to-day, we, 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 should, we should regard that struggle not as a terminal problem. Jesus is the perfecter of faith. So go to Him. We must not turn inward to ourselves, just like determining to squeeze faith out like that last bit of toothpaste in the tube. But rather, turn to Jesus. He is, he is both the founder of faith for the one who has none, and He is the perfecter of faith to the one who is struggling in faith. To those who have no faith at all, He brings them to the faith. To those who have imperfect faith, He strengthens their faith. And so just as when we heard the truth of the gospel for the first time, that, that in our sin we needed the atoning death and life-giving resurrection of Christ applied to us, and, and we cried out to Christ saying, I despair of my own strength. I, I despair of my own good works. I need your righteousness alone. I need you to save me, Lord Jesus. Please save me. So also, in our current struggle, our, our weakness of faith, we also must cry out to Him. Where else would we go? There's a story coming in chapter 9, which will hit on this theme with more clarity. However, there's no crime in borrowing from it for our purposes this morning. As we look to Christ for help with our struggling faith, we can pray with the man of Mark 9.24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a great prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see how deeply we need Jesus? We need Him even for our faith. I mean, we go to Christ in faith, and we must go to Christ for faith. When our eyes don't see Him clearly, we need Him to open them further. When our ears don't hear Him, we need Him to open them. When we don't trust, we need Him to help us trust. We need to pray, pray all the time. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I would suggest that along, alongside that prayer, we meditate on Christ and His work in the gospel. This is something that, were, that was missing in the disciples. They were not thinking about what Christ had done and what it meant to right now. We talk about this all the time, the value of meditating on the gospel. There's a reason for that. Meditating on the gospel should translate by the power of the Holy Spirit, to faith right now, faith to trust Him now. When I think about what Christ has done in the past, His power, what it says about Him, who He is, oh, He's trustworthy right this second. We should also meditate on Christ and His specific work in our lives at at regular intervals, monthly, weekly, daily. You, You choose the interval. Ask questions like these. How has... God intervened in my life? How has He provided? How has He protected? How has He warned? How has He comforted? I would encourage you to not just ask those questions. Write the answers down. Write them down in a journal. And then of that list, ask these questions. 
how should these things inform my current circumstances? Where in my present am I not applying the lessons of His past work in my life? Write that down. Then ask this question. What will it look like to trust Him right now? What will it look like to trust Him right now? Write that down. Pray over those things. Confessing your weakness of faith. Following that with, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help, help, help me to live in light of who you are, what you've done. That's, that's a very intentional way of, of looking to Christ and, and growing in faith and depending upon Him for help growing in faith. Instead of allowing our thoughts to be formed, shaped by the Pharisees and Herods of our culture. Rather, we're, we're, we're pursuing the shaping of our thoughts by Christ's work and our life in the past. Now, what if among us this morning we have some who don't believe at all? You would say, I, I, it's not that I have weak faith, I just have no faith. Maybe I'm here with a friend as a favor. But we're glad you're here. I would say even to you, go to Jesus and pray to Him. We've got a brother here among us this morning who's in that exact situation. Trace Cummings has shared his testimony with us on the podcast. And Trace didn't believe there was a God. And somebody suggested to him, what, what would it hurt to just... Pray to this God that you don't believe. If you're there, help me believe. Give me faith. Did it happen, brother? He prayed that prayer. He, he, he's, he's one of the most radical conversions I've ever seen. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen somebody so nuts about Jesus. I mean, before he prayed the prayer, didn't, didn't believe there was a God. What happened? In the space between... Between, I don't believe there's a God and I want Jesus more than anything. What happened there? Jesus did something because He, he just said, hey, give me faith. If you don't have any faith, that is not a problem. Jesus is the, is the founder of faith. Cry out to Him this morning. Help me. You are in trouble this morning, and you need Him desperately. He, he is the, the only thing that can rescue you from an eternity in darkness, separated from everything that is good. God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, everything that is good, your sin right now separates you from Him, and He is the only thing that can rescue you from that. His death on the cross atones for sins. His resurrection from the dead proves that He is successful in that ministry and that He has the ability to give life to all who believe in Him. You don't have faith in Him, ask Him for it. If you do have faith in Him and you struggle even with day-to-day -day things, go to Him for it. He is the founder and perfecter of faith.
I'm going to pray to close us here, and after I do, we will spend a few moments in silence considering what the Lord would have us to do with these things. Let us pray. Father, we are here before you this morning as living testimonies to the great power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save souls. As great testimonies to the power of Jesus Christ to raise the dead to life. Give repentance and faith to those who have none. Many of us, though we have believed, we... we, we, we Admit freely, Lord, that we, we struggle to trust you with these day-to-day things that come up, some small and some enormous. And so we do come to you this morning recognizing that we have a faith problem and we want to bring it to you. And we pray that you would help us. Pray that you would help our unbelief. That the power that raised Christ from the dead that it would energize us, that our eyes would be fixed upon him. That everything that he has done in the past for us would translate into present, into faith in the present and in the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name.